everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We are going to do part two of our hypotension series, probably of a three-part. We'll see how long it takes. <laughs> uh, but I am Dr. Lauren Duffy. I'm a boarded veterinary anesthesiologist. And I am Laurie Rasbach. I'm a certified veterinary technician in the surgery department. So I guess we can just jump right in. Uh, so last week we talked about kind of defining some big words, um, or some terms. So we defined what hypotension was. We defined that a mean pressure of less than 60 is something that we need to intervene with. And, or if you're using a Doppler, you want to try to intervene whenever you have a Doppler reading less than 100, um, as a general rule of thumb. And, yeah. And the, the whole point is to make sure that we are delivering enough oxygen to our tissues, to our brain, our kidneys, our heart, uh, our GI to really avoid any kind of sacrifices to their function. Um, you know, brain damage sucks. Yeah. So let's talk about the numbers for a second before we jump into management. Sure. So, um, I think that you know, you're, you're waiting, you're watching for the specific number that you have in your head that you have set for yourself. Um, but we're really watching the trends and kind of how we're, how we're seeing that going. Sure. Um, because so you say your number is 60, right? But like 61, 62, are you okay with those numbers? Yeah, probably not. Because it's not 60, and that's what you said, but it's not 65 or 70, oh. which you might be better with. Yep. So um, I think even though we have numbers set in our minds as to when we're going to start treatment, yep. but I think having a plan before that and then being realistic about it, so right. 62 is pretty close to 60, so you might want to do something. <laughs> I think that's very true. I tend to think anything below 70, a mean pressure of 70, my ears kind of prick. You should right? start thinking about something. Yep. Once we hit below 65, I tend to start doing something. And then once we hit below 60, I'm doing something faster. And then once we hit below 55, ah! it's the <laughs> We're never panicking. No. We're no, never showing that we're panicking. And no running. You're not allowed to run in our hospital, so That's don't right. even think about that. <laughs> but uh, you, when I'm kind of at 55 or below, I tend to do things simultaneously where I'm kind of using a, a multi-approach. Sorry, my dogs are kind of growling at each other in the background. But that's how you know we're actually veterinarians is because – we have our dogs featured on our podcasts. <laughs> the corgi that's pictured. Yeah. Our, our, uh, our logo. His name is Wilbur. He's a good dog. He's an orange corgi. Um, anyways. Okay. So let's, uh, let's pretend we have a case and our patient is hypotensive. Let's say our blood pressure tracing says 80 systolic over a diastolic of 45 with a mean of 58. Oof. Yeah. Falls okay, into that so, category. Um, my first step would be, so I will assess my patient as a whole mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. um, I want to, so putting aside just after induction, say, yep. say we're already in the OR, right? Sure. I get this reading that's low. So my first instinct would be to check for anesthetic depth. 
Yeah, is absolutely. My, is my patient too deep? Is my inhalant too high? Yeah. Or is your patient still moving? Because you, yeah. that also is a thing. You will have moving hypotensive patients, which... Is terrible. Yeah. It's really terrible. <laughs> because when they're too deep, just turning them down is a really easy answer. Yes. Um, but if they're already on the border of a stable anesthetic plane, then we might have to get a little bit more creative. But I 100% agree with you. The first thing I always evaluate is what is my anesthetic depth? So we'll do a quick uh, jaw tone, flick, you know, see how loose or tight they are. Heart rate trend. Heart rate trend, yeah. And then a um, uh, palpebral. I, palpebral reflexes. You can't see me, but I'm tapping <laughs> my own eyes here. <laughs> I'm searching for the words. And so the anesthetic depth, especially just being the anesthetist, you probably already have an understanding of that, um, but that can be done very quickly. The next thing I tend to look at is my heart rate because the heart rate can actually send me down either one of two different thought paths. So if my heart rate is very high and my patient is still hypotensive, remember we're dealing with a mean pressure of 58, that to me suggests hypovolemia or hemorrhage of some sort. Maybe that relative hypovolemia that we were talking about in our last episode, but usually that to me means low preload. If instead I have a slow heart rate and hypotension, then that actually tells me that the body is actually not compensating for having low blood pressure. Usually when the animal has low blood pressure, the heart rate should come up to kind of balance it out and try to restore a normal blood pressure. However, if that's failing to happen, it's almost always because of drugs that we have given, like our opioids, like our Dexmed, and so, that can, well, that's actually a much easier fix usually. Um, but that kind of helps to split my mental track. And that is a matter of, I just look at my monitor and if my heart rate is 42 versus 170, that's as fast of an, of an analysis that requires. The next step is for me is evaluating my preload. And you've probably, you might've started to put this together, but other than the anesthetic depth, the things that we're going through is that cardiac output tree that we talked about before. So remember, cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. And then the second part of that is that the stroke volume refers to three main components, preload, afterload, and contractility. And in this quick assessment of our patient, we're gonna to try to figure out all of these different factors simultaneously. We need to evaluate our preload. Um, so we're trying to determine if our patient is hypovolemic or not. Uh, we should have already had a set of blood work to give us a PCV, total solids, and at least a lactate, yep. just so we can assess our hydration status. Yep. Because um, the difference between a 60 a 60 PCV with a total cells of nine and a lactate of five, to me, that suggests dehydration. Mm -hmm. A PCV of 20, a total solids of three, and a lactate of five suggests hemorrhage, which is just a little bit different. Right. Versus 35 and 7.0, it's a TPLO, that's normal. Right, and that will determine how quickly or how much volume you need to replace. Yes, absolutely. And so... Um, we can also check for, like we had mentioned, the pulse 
pressure deficit on Mm -hmm. the waveform uh, that we talked about before by giving a breath, holding it at 10 or 12 and seeing that depression in the waveform to help us um, determine if we are hypovolemic. Yep. I once had a dog that I placed in the airline. He was a giant mastiff or something. I don't know, like 65, 70 kilos. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, this dog was essentially normotensive, like, uh, I would say a mean pressure of like 71, 72, but the heart rate was a little high, like 135. And I did, let me just do a pulse pressure variation test to see where I am. And I give a breath and then the arterial line flattened like down to 40 and then came back. And that was just with a pressure of 10 And that big dog should have been nothing for him. But I was like, Oh, we're actually really behind on volume. Yeah. And the, the heart rate was the first signal. And now this pulse pressure variation, I was like, that cemented it. And I started giving. Right. Did you have a high heart rate? I think it was like 110. Yeah. Which is for a big dog like that though. That could be significant. Yeah. In the face of opioids and fentanyl and lidocaine and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Also with determining preload, we have to determine, do we have a true hypovolemia? Do you see blood in the suction canister, soaking gauze sponges. Is the surgeon panicking about a lot of blood in the gutters during a spay where they can't find their pedicles? Or is do we have a relative hypovolemia, both of which will show on that pulse pre- pressure variation test? And that's just with venous pooling from vasodilation agents like ISO, SIVO, propofol, um, so we're trying to evaluate our preload with this pulse pressure variation test, but then it doesn't necessarily mean that we're hypovolemic, but it definitely gives us a good tick on the hypovolemia um, kind of category. Because we're trying to figure out in which of these big, broad categories does our patient fit into. Um, and then next, so we've looked at preload. Next, we're going to talk about contractility. And contractility is a lot more, I would say, intrinsic to the patient. Do you have a history of DCM, dilated cardiomyopathy, because you're a giant Irish wolfhound who's seven and a half years old here for a lumpectomy? Like that to me, I would just be more suspicious of that. Um, And then the other component being that most inhalants cause decreased contractility. So anything on an inhalant probably has some degree of contractility, um, kind of, or poor contractility. Decreased contractility, yeah. Yeah. And so I might, um, sometimes I look at, if I have a good arterial waveform, I'll look at the difference between systolic and diastolic. And if it's, looks very wimpy, like it's like 80 over 60, as long as if my art line, and I also feel comfortable with my art line, then maybe I'll say, oh, it's it's not a super great contractility or great pulse that we're getting. But even that, it's a very wishy-washy kind of evaluation. And I think in a clinical setting, getting a true contractility measure without like an echo or a TFAS ultrasound, you just kind of have to assume something's happening. Right. And and then the last one that's kind of, that can be big is uh, afterload. So this is again, our resistance to flow. And afterload, remember again, is that resistance to forward flow at the aorta, which is important, but then also we want to look into the global systemic vascular resistance. So the biggest one for determining afterload to me is my diastolic pressure. So if my vessels are very tight, right, even in between um, like ejection and between those peaks of blood pumping, if the 
if the arterioles are squeezing down pretty hard, it won't let the base pressure get too low. As long as your heart rate is essentially normal or normal-ish. But if instead, if my diastolic pressure is 25 or 30, that to me is ding, 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 low afterload or low resistance. And that's contributing to your hypotension. And we talked about earlier, all these things that contribute to it, um, propofol, ACE promazine, any of our inhalants, any kind of sepsis, um, anaphylaxis is, is a great one. Uh, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of options there and something that we run into a lot, but let's say you only have a Doppler. You Dopplers don't give you diastolic pressure, right? So right. then what are you going to use? You instead, while you're at the, at the head, you can just lift the lip, look at your mucous membranes. Are they bright red? That's vasodilated. That's like a septic shock type of thing. Are they very pale? That to me suggests more vasoconstriction. And then while you're there, you can do a quick CRT, a very fast CRT, that's vasodilative, a very slow CRT, meaning like the blood's not just rushing to come back. That's going to be a very vasoconstrictive state. Those two things are very basic and something that we all are taught early on that I think in with all of the monitoring equipment, that's something that's easily forgotten to assess, I think. Yeah. Um, It's, I don't think it's really, I know we do it, we do it when we do our initial intake TPR and then under anesthesia, I do make a point to look at the gums throughout. Um, but I'm also like looking at the mouth, I'm checking for regurg, I'm doing all these other things. Yep. Um, but it is important to kind of take a second and to purposefully assess your mucous yeah. membrane color. I just had overnight, um, a septic abdomen and this dog's mucous membranes were so red, like really like yeah. a, textbook brick red and wow. I was actually like whoo this is this is exciting <laughs> I haven't seen this in so long <laughs> next time take a picture because for teaching moments and things mm-hmm. especially when something like that happens I always forget to do that one of the greatest things about that case actually was as I was relaying to the surgeon about the color of the gums we started our treatment Throughout the surgery and almost by uh, three quarters of the way, maybe through, I noticed a considerable change in the mucous membrane color. Yeah. It was pretty awesome. Were you on a, were you on a, uh, presser as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. It was interesting. Yeah. That's fun. So I know with, we just kind of went into a pretty detailed discussion of our evaluation. Although I think that we can kind of, it seems like a lot, but really you can simplify it down into, I don't know, it takes me about 15 seconds. So I walk, someone calls me, my patient's hypotensive. So I walk into the room to to go check it out. As I'm walking in, I can see the heart rate on the monitor directly. I also, and I take a mental note, is it high or is it low? Cause Mm -hmm. that's going to help me initially. I then will kind of lift up the drape. I'll do a quick jaw tone check to, to evaluate my anesthetic depth. And then I look at my my waveform, if it's on the pulse ox or the arterial line, I might give one positive pressure breath to hold it to 10, look for my pulse pressure variation. And then I will look to see, um, check out my mucous membranes and do a quick CRT, um, while I'm probably while I was actually under there looking at the jaw tone as well. So I have done, 
our entire quote evaluation. Oh, the other thing I look at is a suction canister and I look at my context clues. Uh, I look on the ground, see if there's a lot of blood on the floor. Cause your canister could be empty. Yes. But you could have loads of sponges mm-hmm. on the floor that are full. And also it depends on your patient's size. Right. If the blood has reached the suction canister and your patient's only three kilos, that's a problem. Yes. <laughs> Even if it doesn't look quite voluminous in the canister itself. But that type of a kind of a global once around the OR can it really doesn't take very long, but you get a lot of information. And I think that's just really what I, I kind of want to harp on. Um, because you, my whole goal is to do kind of more of a goal directed therapy where I want to f- realize or figure out what is the source of my hypotension and just treat that cause and not just say, I don't know, I'll try a flu bolus because maybe the flu bolus is not actually the problem, right? Or a fluid deficit. Um, if your heart rate is instead 35, I will probably zero into that as an obvious target that I can fix. So one, step one, evaluate our patient. Step two, turn down your inhalant as much as we can. Yes. And if that means adding in other drugs to help you turn down your inhalant, uh, some max bearing drugs, check your uh, analgesic plan. Uh, Can you add in a fentanyl CRI or another dose of an opioid? Um, Can you add in something like a lidocaine CRI? Yep. All those things will help you to reduce your inhalant. Yep. So if your patient, if it's the kind of situation where, um, this is a thing I ran into a lot as a resident, where the patient gets light, and then the, the surgeon says to me, they're getting huffy. So then I then give a bolus of propofol. Well, propofol causes vasodilation and hypotension. And so then now they're hypotensive. So, and I've tried to turn down my ISO, but my patient was just awake. Right. And so then as soon as that propofol wears off, they're getting huffy. So I give another bolus of propofol and I kind of continue this propofol spiral. Partial cycle. Yes. And so even though I'm trying to turn down my ISO, obviously it's, the amount of inhalant I have right now is actually not sufficient for keeping my patient adequately anesthetized. And that's when you need to reach out and try to balance it more. So our max bearing drugs, we have lidocaine, opioids, benzos like midazolam, mm-hmm. ketamine, and you could make the argument for dexmatomidine. It definitely is a max bearing drug, but in a hypotensive, poor perfusion state, I think that would be a very Last choice. Yeah. Controversial <laughs> dis- like decision. Um, <laughs> But when if I have a very sick case that's hypotensive, I will just load up on benzos. It's reversible. They're long acting, but they are reversible and cardiovascularly very safe. And that lets me turn down my inhalant a lot. So it's um, for my sickest of patients, I think that's what I tend to reach for first. And then if you can really um, plan out your protocol, even doing something like a local block or um, an epidural or something like that to help you be able to have a low inhalant. Yeah. I think that is the definition between a, a good anesthetist and a trying to be good anesthetist is one that doesn't react, but is proactive about planning. Like, um, prior planning prevents poor performance. She can say it in one try. I'm still working on it. (laughs) Um, but so yeah, so step one, evaluate step two, turn down your inhalant or balance if you have to. Step three, address your heart rate concerns. Again, remember cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. So if your heart rate is too slow, 
just fix that. Right. <laughs> and we have two options mostly. We have atropine and glycopyrrolate. If you are in third degree AV block, you need a pacemaker, but hopefully we're not in that situation. Or we knew about that situation before, before. we got started. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so a slow heart rate in general with a good blood pressure, I would say is not super concerning, right? So I you're think allowing get very for, comfortable with lower yeah, heart rate. Especially rates. if you've given dextomator. Correct. Like you're allowing for proper atrial filling and sure. For you're, the blood to move through. Yep. Yeah. And and it's okay because also your metabolic state is pretty low. Right. You don't have a huge tax on your heart. If you so I would have to agree. So if you have a low ish heart rate but a good blood pressure. But a good blood pressure. So we're saying a mean 70 or greater. Yeah. Um, but if your bradycardia is coupled with decreased contractility, then increasing... Or vasodilation. Or vasodilation, then increasing your heart rate could help you increase your mm-hmm. blood pressure. And I think about a lot of the opioids causing dose-dependent bradycardia. And we, as an anesthetists tend to give a lot of opioids. If it's butorphanol or fentanyl or hydromorphone or methadone, we know that that's a side effect of what we're doing. And so we can just treat that by giving atropine or glyco and fixing the whole problem. Right. I think that's one of my biggest pet peeves is when people give flu boluses to patients with heart rates of 35. Right. Because they're not even understanding. They recognize that the blood pressure is low, but they're not taking the moment to then realize what is the actual problem. Yeah. So my... For me, low heart rate, low blood pressure, my first instinct is give some glyco. Yeah. And that should, I think that's an easy reflex. It's very rarely the wrong choice. I can't even think of a situation where that would be a wrong choice. We're more apt to give glyco in these uh, situations versus atropine. I feel like we save for more emergent situations. I think also because we just have like, I think as a hospital, we're very comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has that. Glyco. Um, so atropine is not the wrong choice, but glyco lasts much longer. And if you have a complicated case with a lot of other things going on, this at least kind of helps, you know, lower your task list or your recurrent task list. Then we know dexmedetomine can cause bradycardia. And we know that dexmedetomine causes blood pressure changes in almost a biphasic approach. If your blood pressure is high and your heart rate is low, you're in that initial phase one vasoconstrictive phase of Dexmed. At that point, your patient is not hypotensive and therefore does not apply to this conversation. Right. However, if you are hypotensive, your blood pressure mean is 55. You are no longer in the vasoconstrictive state. You physiologically cannot be in that vasoconstricted state and therefore you can treat your hypotension from the direct bradycardia with Dexmed by giving anticholinergic. I think it's very much about understanding where your patient is in their Dexmed timeline. Um, But again, if your patient is hypotensive and bradycardic, this could be an easy fix. Yeah. And I've, I know there's some definitely controversy with giving glyco or an anticholinergic following an administration of Dexmed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in that situation, that's where it would be appropriate to yep. treat with an anticholinergic. Yep. Now, I th- also uh, 
so I've heard other people who would in that situation reverse the Dexmed. <sighs> so right, I would naturally rather treat the symptoms versus reverse the Dexmed and end up with an awake patient. Because then you have to get more propofol, the and we know that the propofol is going to cause hypotension. I have had, I have never wanted to do it, and then recently have reversed my Dexmed under anesthesia, and it was terrible. It was <laughs> terrible. Yes. I wo- I wound up with an awake patient. Yep. With an open incision. With an open incision. And no intubation. And then a scramble for a propofol. In a new tube. And oh, a new it was tube. awful. It was terrible. It was terrible. I'm pretty sure I'm not ever doing that again, but... Well, I think I, that case had some really weird arrhythmias, <laughs> and the ECG was all over the place. It was, I think it was the right choice in that moment, but at the same time, you then still have to deal with the aftermath. Exactly. The whole reason you gave Dexmed is to provide some sedation right. and, and contribute to your anesthetic plane. And then by reversing it because you're panicked about the low heart rate, now you have an awake patient that you then have to then compensate with other things. It could just make your life so challenging. Yeah. So just treating the side effects, I suppose, is um, kind of the way to go. Yeah. And if, again, if your blood pressure is normal and your heart rate is just a little low because you gave Dexmed, you did that intentionally. Right. You, and you picked that patient as one who could receive Dexmed for that, like who would tolerate those types of changes and that's okay. Hopefully you just don't regret your choice mm-hmm. and you have feel like you have given a Dexmed to a patient who can't tolerate it. Yeah. Which- and as a, a side note with anticholinergics, if your patient is bradycardic and hypotensive and hypothermic, your anticholinergics may not work like you intend them to. I don't think glyco or atropine really works below 93 degrees, 94 degrees. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't encounter that too often. No. But I think of I think of that little white Maltese, yeah. big dog, little dog that we just did. Literally evolves this kidney. It's amazing it's still alive. But had all these wounds everywhere. It was a long surgery. And I think that patient was 89 90 degrees at one point. It was awful. He was soaking wet because of all the wound flushing. It was just, there was, oh my God, like a little fluid warmer. The little egg was yeah. just not. <laughs> those like, those situations I think uh, are, are really hard. In that moment, however, giving atropine or glyco was the right decision. However, you have something else that you have to fix first, right? right? You have Before to warm your patient up. Yeah. Warming your patient up also might help with your heart rate and your blood pressure, yep. but then you have the ability to use the glyco and yep. it will work. I find that as we, so let's say as we're starting to close, you know, they use a warm flush to flush the abdomen as they're closing. And then the body temperature kind of starts to creep up. And I feel like once I hit 92.5, 93.5, somewhere in that range, all of that glyco I've given that has been waiting comes to fruition. And you can hear it on your Doppler. It goes do, 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 do. <laughs> Exactly. You're like, you oh no, it's coming. Heart revving up, yeah. getting ready. <laughs> and uh, so don't just keep giving it and giving it and giving it yes. if you're not getting a result, if, especially if your patient's that cold, because um, you're just going to have to deal with that on the flip side. So that can be really painful for mm-hmm. us. So, all right. So, just recapping again. One, we're evaluating our patient. Two, we're turning down their inhalant. Three, we're increasing our heart rate with atropine or glyco. And that brings me to four, which is a fluid bolus. If you have evidence of dehydration or hypovolemia. So if you're, 
if your heart rate is high, right? Like let's say 170 and your patient is adequately anesthetized, you try turning down your ISO a little bit, you can jump over giving glyco because your heart rate is already high. That's not the problem, right? Right. Um, and then I feel like those are all evidence ticks for being behind on volume. And I think it's hard because we're always trying to determine, do we have relative hypovolemia or true hypovolemia? And anything that's getting any kind of vasodilative agent, like an inhalant, which is 95% of our patients, have some element of relative hypovolemia. You just can't isolate one from the other. But some patients truly are behind on blood volume, especially if they have a history of hemorrhage, especially if their PCV total solids is 60 and 9.2. You have plenty of evidence just kind of in that background. Um, but if I'm still not hundred percent sure, I would tend to do what's called like a test bolus. So I'll do five mils per kg over, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, something in that mm-hmm. range. And then if they, if I see a response, I'll then finish my fluid bolus with a second five mil. So in total, I've given 10, but I did kind of a little first five to see what would happen. So usually what I'm expecting is I'm expecting to see the heart rate come down first. The heart rate going up, the tachycardia is a uh, compensatory reflex for being a low volume state. So if you're super hemorrhagic shock with a, with a hemoabdomen, sometimes we have these big German shepherds with heart rates of 180, mm-hmm. 175, and then you give a flu bolus, I might not see the pressure change immediately, but you'll see the heart rate go from 175 to 150. And you're like, oh, he likes this. So then I'll follow it up and I'll try to bring him back to normal. Um, you don't want to flood your patients. Um, but I think that's usually how I see the response. I see the tachycardia resolving almost before I see the blood pressure resolving because the body has kind of determined its own compensatory threshold. Like it will try to hold 55 mean pressure by varying the heart rate. And then the easier it's able to do that by having better blood volume, the less tachycardia we see. Right. And once you see that it is working, by replacing some of your volume, but maybe crystalloids are just not enough. Right. And so doing, you know, first you do five, then you do, you have a total of 10. And then if you have to go more, keep doing more to keep lowering your heart rate and increasing your blood pressure, I think at that point, maybe, um, switching over to a colloid. Yeah. I usually say a total of well, my instructors always told me 20 or 30 mils per kg in fluid bowls is on top of that background five mils per kg per hour. That's our pretty standard fluid rate. Um, but once you've reached for more than 20 or 30, something, something's up, right? right? Um, either you are still trying to address dehydrative, a dehydration status that was not corrected appropriately before anesthesia, which is its own separate problem. Yes or you're having persistent hemorrhage. Yes. And LRS or Normar or plasma light, whatever you're using, that will help stretch your blood volume to maintain an adequate perfusion. However, there's no hemoglobin in crystalloids, right? So if you have a certain level of hemorrhage, at some point you need oxygen carrying capacity. And that's going to come with your packed red blood cells. Mm-hmm. Packed red blood cells also clearly are not just, it's not a solid thing, right? It's a liquid bag. So you're still getting blood volume, but you're getting volume plus oxygen. Right. Your other option would be plasma. 
Plasma does not have oxygen carrying capacity, but it does come with albumin and clotting factors, especially if it's fresh, um, fresh frozen. So if that's what you need, let's say you have a septic patient with your total protein is 3.0, which means that your albumin is super low and it's a very, that's a, not a state you really want to be. And I think you had recently had a patient that was super I did. hypoalbuminemic. Yes. Um, of like albumin was two started off at like 2.2 and then was below two. Yep. And then eventually below one. Yeah. That's scary. Um, but at that point you're probably hypotensive because you have no albumin. Right. Um, and so using plasma is probably indicated in that sense. Yeah. And in that scenario we did do canine albumin transfusions. Yeah. I, Cause it was so severe. Yes. Um, I know, well, we also, you can try if it's not like a acute blood loss situation, um, and you need something a little bit more powerful than your crystalloids using something like a hypertonic saline bolus or, um, the forbidden vet starch. Yeah. Uh, the colloids, I mean, well, hypertonic saline, that is a short-term fix. That's a, that's a great option if you just need a bump to get over. So I think about our quote, low volume resuscitation, end quote, for let's say um, severe acute hemorrhage where you don't have hemostasis. Um, a great example is a hemoab. This is some, clearly, we deal with these all the time. So the idea is that in a hemoabdomen with uncontrolled hemorrhage, the, if you flood them with, uh, with fluids like LRS, you're diluting clotting factors. You're actually going to increase the amount of pressure on those kind of newly developing clots. And so you'll kind of delay hemostasis in a sense. And you actually increase mortality. So what you want to do in those kind of acute, uncontrolled bleeding scenarios is you don't resuscitate them back to quote normal. You can use low volume, like hypertonic saline or something just to kind of maintain your mean pressure around 55, 60, just until they're able to kind of clamp off that splenic artery. And then everyone takes a big deep breath and that's fine. If your patient is exsanguinating himself, you can only do that for so long, right? You have to maintain some level of blood flow and you might have to start a transfusion early, but hypertonic saline, if it's just a matter of, I need 15 minutes and that can just be your nice bridge colloids like starches and such in septic shock models with like true sepsis it has been shown that you probably should not reach for colloids it's kind of old medicine it's currently controversial mm-hmm. some are arguing that it doesn't matter some are saying it's still helpful some are saying it just doesn't hurt but it's more expensive so why would you do it right um but in a hemorrhage model it seems like it's actually is okay if you it, it does not come with oxygen carrying capacity. So it might not, it shouldn't be your first, well, but it's like, if you still are trying to warm up your pack cells or right, if you it's don't not addressing have, your blood loss. Right. Exactly. But it will solve your hypotension in the immediate while you're waiting on something else. Right. Um, and so there is a place for it, but I think you just have to be, you know, careful mm-hmm. and, Again, it's controversial. Yeah, and I, I've, I'm of the training, like you had mentioned before. So say you're in surgery and you kind of have an acute bleed, but it's contr- pretty controlled. So the surgeon is communicating with you. They know they've, um, they've hit something or there's a bleeder of some sort. And say your blood pressure at the moment is okay and not mm-hmm. 
drastically dipping in that moment itself. I think it is of the um, training to kind of still supply with your fluids, but wait for the, if your blood pressure is okay, wait for the bleeding to stop Mm -hmm. and then assess your blood pressure, replace fluids as necessary. Yep. Um, You really want to achieve hemostasis. Right. I've been taught in that moment, kind of if you're like, oh no, there's blood loss and you're panicking and then you just start bolusing fluids, you can actually make the hemorrhage worse. Absolutely. And so by kind of just taking a a second to communicate uh, as to how controlled this is uh, and then assess your plan versus, like you said, something that is just bleeding out and you know that it's going to be terrible. Terrible. And I think whenever there's hemorrhage, before hemostasis has been achieved, everyone kind of panics and there's a flurry of like, ah, right? (laughs) Fluids. Yeah, exactly. And I think the skilled anesthetist will be like, we'll stay calm and we'll say, you know what? My mean pressure still is only 72. I'm not going to panic. Right. I'm going to wait and see. Yeah. I'm not going to try to actively make it hypotensive. Don't do that. No. But just let it kind of flow and then see. And then if you know, if you reach 57 and hemostasis still has not reach. Now you're at 55. Now you, you will have to start intervening, but again, you're not trying to restore them to normal. You're just trying to make it to 60 until everything kind of calms down. Yeah. And I think in that scenario, at that point, I would be reminding myself what my patient's total blood volume is and keeping an eye on that. Yes. Uh, I think sometimes we try, um, if we are expecting hemorrhage, this goes back to our setting up for our case, uh, discussion before, but if you know that your patient is at a high risk for hemorrhage, um, well, a splenectomy or a hemoab, that's pretty or obvious. Li- any liver, liver lobectomies, anything, yeah. yeah. anything in the chest where you're next to the heart and that kind of makes right. me nervous. Um, but if you're expecting hemorrhage, just have that blood volume calculated before you get started. Uh, so 90 mils per keg for a dog, 60 mils per keg for a cat. And then I would say anything past 20% blood loss is where I indicates for treatment. Yeah, exactly. And then 30%, I'm really doing something. Hopefully you don't get to that point. Yes. (laughs) So, all right. So one, we evaluated our patient Two, we decreased our ISO three, we increased our heart rate Four, we addressed any fluid deficits. And then when all else fails, we now have to address essentially this relative hypovolemia or this, uh, decrease in, um, systemic vascular resistance which I still would say applies to 95% of our patients. Yes. Um, I think going into this will be a whole, will be the third segment. So we're going to talk about sympathetic physiology in terms of discussing alphas and beta receptors, understanding which pressors work on which receptors, because that will, that might change what you pick in terms of um, if you have mitral valve disease or you're a cat with HCM, um, that all kind of changes things. Um, all right. So that was, that was a lot. I think that actually was probably hopefully super helpful. Um, so let's just do a quick recap. I know I keep doing this every couple of minutes, but it's my five steps. I do this five steps for every patient I manage that has hypotension. One, evaluate your patient. What is their anesthetic depth? What is their heart rate? Can you get some kind of estimate of preload by using the pulse pressure variation test or looking at their blood work um, or looking at the the blood in the suction canisters or in the sponges? Um, And can I get in some kind of degree of how either vasodilated or vasoconstricted they are? 
Two, is there any way that I can drop my inhalant and lighten their anesthetic depth? If they're already moving, that means that you need another drug or drugs, plural, that help balance your anesthetic protocol to uh, allow you to decrease your ISO while still keeping them on the table and still for the, for the surgeon. Three, if you are bradycardic, try to fix that directly because that can be a huge, uh, a huge factor in hypotension. Next, I try to address any volume deficits. Um, again, starting with crystalloids, you can try a test bolus. Um, then, but if you have severe hemorrhage, you're probably gonna have to reach for your PAC cells or your plasma, or you can use a colloid in a short, uh, like in a short-term fix. And then lastly, I will then kind of try to combat my vasodilation. Um, if I need my inhalant where it is, or the patient themselves is just vasodilated because they're in septic shock, that's probably what I'm gonna address. Um, with my pressors, but that'll be kind of step three for yeah. the, our podcast series. What's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But monitoring blood pressure is very important. Yeah. Um, and I think the best way to prevent hypotension is to detect it early on, yeah. detect a reducing trends yep. and then, um, treat accordingly, go through your steps and don't make it a complicated process. Take it one step at a time right. and try and problem solve as you go. Yep. And then not to rely on one bad number um, as a reflection of your whole patient. Yep. So make sure you're monitoring your trends. Keep in mind your patients, uh, why your patient is in surgery in the first place and any underlying disease um, that could be contributing, any drugs that you're using that contributes, and um, use those as a basement a basis for your treatment plan. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, you can you can always check like a repeat your let's say you're using Osmetric, you can repeat that measurement once or twice before you feel like you have actually have to act on it. But I think that's a that's a really good point. Um, yeah, this is a this is a big topic, and I think the kind of the cool thing about hypotension management is I feel like it, it really goes to the thinking of the anesthetist and the autonomy that it comes, that being an, an anesthetist actually kind of governs in terms of adjusting how you adjust your inhalants, how you start to add in additional drugs, and really this, this problem solving or critical thinking, um, I think this is a great example as to what makes like an anesthetist kind of a, like a special team member. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and we make these plans for our protocols and try and plan out complications before they happen yep. just so we're prepared, but it's okay for your plan to change oh, and yeah. it's okay for you to make adaptations yep. to help your patient have a smoother anesthetic protocol yep. or a period and for your patient to wake up afterwards. Absolutely. Alrighty. I think this is enough for one day. Um, until next time, um, I hope this is helpful for your patients. I think, I don't know, what did you say? 60% of our patients experience hypotension at some point. Yeah, it's a hot topic. Yeah, exactly. Um, alrighty, well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, check out our Facebook page. I'm going to go ahead and put some diagrams of that pulse pressure variation that might help uh, for those visual learners, might help this make a little bit more sense. 
Um, I'll also kind of put on my cardiac output tree of how I kind of diagram out my cardiac output and heart rates or volume kind of tree. Um, so that might help with the learning process as well. Um, but we uh, love helping you guys and we look forward to talking to you next week. All right. Have a good one. Bye.